Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. The Waco History Podcast is brought to you by Brotherwell Brewing. As of this recording, they're back open for drinking on premises. And join Stephen and I on November 12th for trivia. We're putting together a category on Waco history. Check them out off historic Bridge Street in East Waco. That's Brotherwell Brewing. Cross the Brazos and Waco. Ride hard and I'll make it by dawn. Cross the Brazos and Waco. Welcome to the Waco History Podcast. I'm Randy Lane, great-grandson of Waco architect Roy E. Lane. Over 100 years ago, he designed the Alico Building, Hippodrome, and other well-known landmarks. My co-host, Dr. Stephen Sloan of Baylor's Institute for Oral History, is helping me learn Waco's known and unknown stories. On this episode, Hidden History of Waco. Old Tell Johnson, buried in his mausoleum, sitting up with a six-shooter and a glass of whiskey. Eric Ames is back. You'll remember him from our tornado episode. He's got a new book, hidden history of Waco, and he's telling us some of the stories. There's a horseback riding ghost. There's not one, but two fires in a brothel. And now, join us on a trip into Waco's past. Stephen, today we have a returning guest. Yeah, so Eric Ames is back. Eric S. Ames is back with us. He, uh, was with us with mm-hmm. our episode on the Waco tornado, and so we have invited him back. He's got a new book out on uh, Waco history, and so we've invited him back to visit <laughs> with us. He's got a great radio voice, too. Why, thank you very much, Dr. Sloan. I appreciate that very much. I actually was briefly on the radio in college, the college radio station for Texas Tech, 88.1 KTXT. I really enjoyed that, uh, but thankfully I also have a face for radio, so that's why you don't see me on TV <laughs> very often. But in all seriousness, thank you for having me back. It was a real delight last time to talk about the tornado, and I'm really excited to jump into some of these stories from the new book. So what's the new book called? The new book is called The Hidden History of Waco. It's from the History Press, and it came out on August 31st. I love hearing new stories that I maybe have not heard about Waco history. So what are some of the interesting stories you've got for us? Well, I have a bunch, and one of the first things I needed to do was figure out how to lay these out. And the the way that made the most sense was to sort of clump them by rough timeline order. So part one deals with the era from Reconstruction through the late 1800s, so the Gilded Age. Uh, part two deals with the early 20th century. Then we have the era from basically World War One, the interwar years, and World War II. And then a few stories from post-war Waco, taking us up to the, the 1990s. And then a little section at the end for some, some photos I ran across that I couldn't dig up any of the real story behind them, uh, but they were too bizarre or interesting to not <laughs> include. So... It covers a wide range, and a few things might be familiar to people who have, have paid attention to Waco history. Some folks like William Cowper Brand shows Love that up. Guy. Uh, we have, oh man, <laughs> he. I, I would like to quote a few of his things in this uh, this episode oh, yeah. if, if we can. Uh, he he had a way with words. <laughs> uh, Randy called him Waco's first troll. Yep, <laughs> that's perfect. Yeah, and like any good troll, he knew exactly how to rile people up and exactly where to to cross the line. So, <laughs> yeah, I would love to to hop into to Mr. Brand and the iconoclast. Well, we touch on things like a little bit on the history of the Klan in Waco in McLennan County. Uh, the KKK was was pretty active here in, in the the early 20th century, and that's that's one of those stories that was literally hidden. You hid your membership in the Klan, but it was also a difficult subject to address in the years after, and we don't always go back to talk about it. So that's there. But then we have fun ones like the the two tombs of Telephus Johnson and the Ooh. creation. Yeah, that was a fun one. His full name. No, is what's his name? Telephus Telemachus Louis Augustus Albertus Tell Johnson. <laughs> okay, um, so I, I want to hear this story. So let's let's kick it off there. I want to hear this story. Sure, uh, I'm happy to do that. So Tell Johnson had two tombs, and that's because he left a legacy of great intrigue to the people of Waco, and then it gets tied up in the sort of gradual downfall of the First Street Cemetery and then his resurrection into Oakwood. So the backstory on Tell Johnson is he was born in 1822, moves to Waco, and joins his family here in the 1850s. His 
name came from his father, who was quoted as being a good-humored Methodist minister. Uh, <laughs> and he always wanted to give his children long, high-flown names. So again, okay. that, that full name is Telephus, Telemachus, Louis, Augustus, Albertus, Johnson. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yes. Now, thankfully, he marries a woman named Mary, so that's much easier. Um, <laughs> they moved to Waco in 1852 when he's 30 years old. Within a decade or so, he has become one of the most wealthy citizens in town. He owns about 700 acres of land, and he uh, has set himself up quite nicely in Waco. Fun little side note from this, he owns a big parcel of land near 2nd Street where he built a big house for Mary and himself. The cross street that was laid out was named Mary Avenue in her honor. So if you think of 2nd ah. and Mary... Yes, that's, that's hey. where his house was, and now you know where Mary came from. He was uh, he was quite visible in the Waco community. He got involved in a lot of uh, opportunities. One of the things that's noted in 1874, he was noted in a paper as being one of the ones who was involved as a bidder for the auctioning off of the old courthouse, which he purchased with a winning bid of $575. A uh, steal. A steal, absolutely. The Trib notes, uh, it's likely this purchase led to him being influential in the location determined for the building that followed that original courthouse one year later. So it's pretty evident that he bought it because he knew that's where they'd put the new one and he could turn around and sell it and make some money on the deal. So Tell was, was pretty colorful. He dies in 1875. Because he had some means, he was buried in First Street Cemetery in an above-ground red brick mausoleum. Uh, that mausoleum is still there. If you go to the First Street Cemetery, it's on the sort of the border closest to the interstate. It's a big red brick box, essentially, with some posts on it. Uh, you can tell that there are some metal pieces where there used to be some metal plaques that hung on the exterior. Those are, are gone. But it's one of the more striking pieces in that portion of the cemetery. What really made this story interesting was around the time he died, over the subsequent years, a story came up that he was buried, seated at a table, and he was either doing one of the following things. He was either holding a pistol or a glass of whiskey or playing cards, depending on who was telling the story. <laughs> So if you can imagine, you know, there's the stories that start to go around of, of old Tell Johnson buried in his mausoleum, sitting up with a, with a six-shooter and a glass of whiskey. And those rumors stayed around for a long time. Eventually, that cemetery starts to fall into disrepair, and, and people with means start to relocate their family members to Oakwood. It's much larger. It's better maintained. It opened in 1878. And his family is one of the ones who made that move. They moved his remains into an above-ground crypt. It's also still in Oakwood. It's a large white marble box. It has a plinth on top and has lots of death-related imagery, including some uh, torches that are carved upside down to symbolize a life extinguished by death. Uh, it's notable because it has the inscription, Rest, Eternal Rest. And so Tell gets relocated, and the, the box is much too small for him to be sitting at a table, so we know that that story is, is no longer true, whether it was true in the past or not. Oh, man. I know. That was a bummer. But uh, <laughs> the, the, the original entombment definitely was inspiration for some pretty great stories. A side story about his widow, uh, Mary Louisa, after he dies a few years later, she marries a man named John Tarleton in 1876. Tarleton was a rich man, and she had a lot of money from her marriage to tell, so they actually signed a prenup, which was, was pretty rare for the time. Mm. After they get married, though, Mary realizes that John actually owned large tracts of land that were not disclosed in their prenup, which greatly increases his net worth, and she's mad. Hmm. Uh, you were worth a lot more than I thought, and now you're holding out on me because you're a parsimonious man uh, who hoards your money and you won't support me in the, the style that I would like to be supported. So after just three years of marriage, she files for divorce. She claims that John was violent toward her. The trial ends finding nothing to prove that one way or the other, and they both just end up separating. When John Tarleton dies in 1895, all the assets that were left that he had when he passed went to the founders of a college named in his honor, John Tarleton College. That's today's Tarleton State. Mm -hmm. The lady for whom Mary Avenue was named has a connection to Tarleton State. And then she's connected to a man with multiple tombs and a pretty colorful legacy. So that's the story of Albertus Johnson. So why did they leave his first tomb up if he's no longer in there? That is an excellent question, and I could not find an answer to that. I don't know if it was not worth the hassle to take it down, if it was against some kind of policy for the cemetery that they, they needed to keep it there. Uh, if it was just considered to be too nice of an example of early Waco funerary art and they just decided to leave it, I don't honestly know. So logistically, could a body be in there seated at a table if you look at the size of it? If it's a narrow table and a small body, yes. 
Okay. In researching it, where did you find this story or where did you find these different versions of the story? Several places. One was he has an entry in the handbook of Waco McLennan County that had some information about his backstory. And then uh, Marion Travers actually wrote an article about his internment and then subsequent move back in the 60s, I believe it was. Okay. So she had done some of the, the legwork on that as well. And then there was a write-up in the Tribune Herald of 1924 where it talked about uh, his story and, and the, the, the legend of, of his unique internment. So is it possible that he was seated in the first tomb and then his position was changed when he was moved? That's what I'm getting at. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. And that is my own personal hope and belief. I will I will go to my own grave hoping that because it's just a much more colorful story. So yes, it is possible. But it's a pistol, a glass of whiskey, or playing cards. And so do we know if he was a gambler or a drinker? Or a violent man? I don't know documented any of those things. Uh, nothing I ran across led me to believe that he was any of those three, but it certainly fits with the, the Wild West mystique of you know six-shooter junction in, in Waco, the, this yeah. idea that settler from Alabama comes in and he, he makes himself a fortune and he's, he's a colorful figure, so it makes sense that at least one of those things would be accurate. I love it. I'm going to update my own funeral plans. <laughs> you also need to get some more names, Randy. Yeah, I do. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, yes, let's, let's say sure that name one more time. I want to hear that, that name one more time. Okay. Telephus, Telemachus, Lewis, Augustus, Albertus, Johnson. <laughs> Uh, that's what his mama that's told. a good one that's, that's a really long time. one yeah when you're in trouble it's very long <laughs> eric I, I had a question just a kind of a general question and this may be something that that you've thought about a little bit because you wrote about it in the beginning of the book this is your third book on waco history so why why spend so much time thinking about and writing about waco I think it goes back to growing up in a town that was founded in the 1920s and was exclusively an oil boom town. Um, I grew up in Borger, Texas, which is up in the, the panhandle north of Amarillo. And so relatively, there wasn't much history to dive into. Uh, we, we didn't get a lot of the Old West. Uh, we got the, the oil boom and the, and the subsequent changes from that period forward. But I didn't get a lot of the, the, the frontier, a lot of the Old West, the what, what some people would consider just traditional Texas history. But I grew up reading those stories, and I grew up loving Texas history in general. I grew up with a love of storytelling and just learning about anything that was historically related to the places where I lived. So when I moved to Waco in 2005, I jumped immediately into reading the published books that were already out there. One of the first things I picked up was Roger Conger's Pictorial History of Waco, found it at a, a used bookshop and immediately snatched that up. I would read Patricia Ward Wallace's books, anything I could get my hands on. And just really fell in love with the stories in the, in the history of Waco, uh, from the Native Americans to the Anglo settling uh, all the way through to the modern era with the tornado and the Camp MacArthur. Everything just really resonated with me. And I really felt like this was the first town in Texas where I had lived where I felt like I could dive into a really deep, broad cross-section of Waco history. And so with the first two books, you know, the focus is on photos and imagery. And it was really great to have access to archives here at Baylor and then in the community like Bill Foster's collections from the Waco Citizen and its, its long history to be able to look at these images and say, OK, I can tell some of the story about this based on this image and help expose uh, Waco history to maybe some broader audiences. But when this one came along and I knew it was a chance to dive into stories where maybe there aren't photos or maybe there are photos that we've seen a million times, but we haven't told the story behind the person behind the photo. That really intrigued me. Uh, it was a chance to join some pretty rarefied air uh, in, in being someone who has, has been fortunate enough to publish three books uh, on any subject, honestly, uh, but on a subject that I'm really fascinated by and, and have fallen in love with was, was a real blessing. But just to be able to, to have the opportunity to take some of those stories and, and put them on a, a broader stage again was, was too good to pass up. Yeah, and the other question I thought as I read these stories, and, and a lot of them are, I was familiar with, I like your title, Hidden History of Waco. What attributes you think or aspects of a particular story make it more hidden, do you think? I think some things are hidden because they're just not documented very well, and the people who wrote things down either didn't get them into an archive or a collection somewhere where they could be preserved in that form and, and, and allowed for scholars to find them later. Uh, it makes it difficult to track some of those down. So I think there's just, you know, sort of a neglect to record the stories. I think actually being intentional about recording them in the first place can lead things to being hidden. I think, honestly, some stories are, are hidden because we, we don't want to remember them or it's difficult for us to grapple with them. And there, there are a couple in here that were difficult for me to grapple with, and they were, they've, they've become even more so uh, in the months since 
George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis back in May. Some of the stories that deal with the complicated history of race relations in Waco were hard enough to write prior to that, but then this renewed focus on how we relate to one another between uh, you know, racial constituents and this idea that there are stories that can be told in so many different ways and through so many different lenses, I think some of them are just really hard to settle on a way to do that. And so they're hidden because we just choose not to tell them in this kind of a platform. Those stories are still told in, within family groups. Uh, they're told within specific neighborhoods or specific socioeconomic groups. But when it comes to actually sitting down, looking at documentation, writing it down and putting it somewhere where people can access it, I think sometimes those stories are left out because they're just, they're just too mm. hard to tell. Yeah, I think one of those stories that we talked about earlier that's included here is the story of Roy Mitchell, which is connected both to Jesse Washington in some ways, but also Jesse Thomas. And so I don't know if you'd mind sharing a little bit about uh, that story that folks may not know. Sure. As, a, as kind of a preface, this is one of the two stories in this book that were difficult for me to write. And in light of the, the ongoing protests about social justice and race relations in this country, they, they are the two that I think will strike a chord maybe with folks that, that may not be expecting it. You know, they're, they're two stories that deal with, this is one of the two stories that deal with, with race in Waco's history. You mentioned Jesse Washington and Jesse Thomas. Those are better known. And in some ways, Roy Mitchell's story is it's of a piece with those in that it was uh, related to accusations of murder and the establishment of murder and then the, the punishment that came after it. Um, in this case, uh, it actually was legal in, in that it was a legal execution. And so there's, there's lots of conversations to be had there. But from the lens of the time, it was the last public execution in Texas. There is some evidence that there was an, another public hanging in Victoria shortly after, but it was a closed group and it wasn't viewed by the public like this one was. But the story of Roy Mitchell dates back to the 1920s. Uh, his story was written up in a book by Michael Newton called An Encyclopedia of Modern Serial Killers. It states that this case started with a single murder on May 7th, 1922, and that was when someone used an axe to murder a deputy constable. His pistol and some personal items were stolen, and police had no leads. Uh, about two weeks later, uh, a killer struck again when he shot and killed a 21-year-old who was parked in a car with his girlfriend outside of Waco. That woman was raped, unfortunately, but the killer left her alive. She later accused a man named Jesse Thomas, who we've mentioned already, as her attacker. He was shot to death by the girl's father, and his body was burned by a lynch mob. And for the moment, that was enough for some people to think that justice had been done and that the killings would stop. However, not long after that, a couple who was parked near Lover's Leap in Cameron Park uh, were attacked by a black man with a shotgun. Uh, the male, a guy named Grady Skipworth, was killed immediately. The woman survived after she fell off the cliff because a tree broke her fall. Once again, uh, an unnamed black man was accused, but Waco had learned its lesson from what happened with Jesse Thomas, and an all-white jury acquitted the suspect, and he was released to a storm of applause from the court. Already, the atmosphere is very tense. We've already had one person accused of the crime who was lynched, and then it turns out it wasn't him. And now we have another person who was identified and he's acquitted and, and rightfully so. But then it becomes more complex when the murders continue. On January 20th, uh, 1923, two more murders were carried out on the same sort of lines as the ones of the, the people in the past attacks. A young man and a woman were parked outside Waco city limits in a car. A man jumps into one of the windows and shoots one of them to death before beating the other and fleeing into the night. He stole their car and left it on a city street the next day where uh, police found it. At the same time, someone in town told authorities that a cap that they had recovered at a previous attack belonged to a man named Roy Mitchell, who had been in Waco, uh, had come here from Louisiana. It's kind of interesting to me in a, in a macabre way that a number of these attacks take place in a remote area, uh, specifically Cameron Park, around the time that car culture is really mm. starting to start to flourish in the United States. These are people who, mainly young couples, who have gone off into Cameron Park to be alone, to do what young couples do, and they're in these remote areas with lots of urban park around them, and they're all attacked sort of in these remote areas by someone who jumps out of the shadows. It almost feels like sort of the inspiration for some of those old urban mm -hmm. legends about, you know, the, the killer with the hook for the hand. And you can feel that being very real, and I can imagine that people at the time were, were terrified that these young people would go out and, and that they could be at risk of, of some violence happening to them. That's one of those things that sort of ties them all together. By January 30th, police have arrested Mitchell on a gambling charge 10 days after the murders of another couple. Uh, they search his home and they find some property that was stolen from the first murder victim as well as another murder victim. And they take him to jail and after three days he confesses to five murders. Wow. He comes to trial twice in March 
but between his arrest and his original confession to his trial, he recants. He claimed that he only confessed because he was afraid that he'd be tortured or lynched if he didn't. Patricia Bernstein wrote a book called The First Waco Horror, and she notes that Mitchell's wife and their 10-year-old daughter were at both of his trials and testified that Mitchell had been home at the times of the killings. By the time they finally get him to trial the, the third time, uh, they deliberate for several minutes. Uh, he's found guilty on all, all counts, and he's sentenced to die by hanging. At this point, it's probably reasonable to think because of the history of this case and because of Jesse Washington and Jesse Thomas and the presence of the Klan that this has to be at a boil in terms of, of race relations in Waco at this time. There was the, the possibility that this could have gone even worse than it already had. But thankfully, the, the men of the police department and the, the sheriffs and the various authorities in McLennan County, they managed to keep people calm, and they do go ahead and carry out uh, a public execution on July 30th. They set up a scaffold behind the county jail, and a crowd of between four and 8,000 people gathered outside to witness the execution. His last words were, goodbye, everybody. He was hanged, and people dispersed uh, without further violence, unlike in the case of Jesse Washington, when there was a lurid display of his body and just some heinous and, and terrifying actions that happened there. So it could have gone much differently. It could have gone much worse. That's not to say that this was a textbook case of justice done. It's a very complicated story. It's very difficult, and it still resonates today. And it was difficult to write about. It was hard to to mention. I did so a couple of reasons. Uh, it's mentioned in places like Patricia Ward Wallace's books. She talks about how the, the strong influence of the Klan in the early 1920s, as well as the mob justice against people like Jesse Thomas, could have kept sentiment toward a black man being accused of murdering five white people very strongly negative. And there would have been a lot of pressure on local authorities to do the right thing in this case. And so you had that aspect going on. And then you just have the, the public spectacle aspect of it. You know, there's, there's a reason we don't do this in, in public anymore. Even in the time before uh, all the heightened tensions that we have now, it, something like this would have been uh, just unthinkable to modern audiences. To look back at something like that and, and to think that it happened here and it was court sanctioned and it was a spectacle for thousands of people, it's just, it's, it's hard to wrap yeah. your mind around. So did you pick this story in particular because it was complicated with the whole like five murders thing and the other people were accused of it. Was that one of the reasons why it was more interesting to you? That definitely played into it. I stumbled across this story around the same time I was working on the entry on Saronia, Texas, uh, which does a lot to describe you know the, the landscape around a fictionalized Waco. Madison Cooper Jr. had a really great eye for detail and he's writing all these things about these settings and, and some of the things he describes are pretty clearly inspired by Cameron Park. Well, then I come across the story of Roy Mitchell, and so many of these murders took place in that area, and it just kind of all came together. And then I ran across a really random quote from Kent Keith, who was the director of the Texas Collection at Baylor for many years, who said that he knew that Roger Conger had a piece of the rope that was used to hang Mitchell in his own collection. And so all of that kind of tied together, and I thought, okay, this is a story that, that I need to, to attempt to tell. And I hope I do it some justice. It's one of those things that I don't want to glorify any actions through the telling of it. I think it's important to revisit for what it says about Waco at that time and to show how far we've come mm. and how much farther we still need to come. Are there any other stories that you think are particularly interesting or noteworthy that we should mention from your book? Share something fun. <laughs> Let's take it back up. Yeah. <laughs> yes. We need a palate cleanser. Yes, indeed. So, yes, there are a number. A really short one that was kind of fun to run across was the story of the church built in a day. And this was uh, a structure that would come to be known as the Herring Avenue Methodist Church, but it was known in the time of its construction as the church they built in a day. This was a really audacious plan that came to mind under the direction of the pastor there, uh, Reverend H.L. Munger, who he and his congregation decided they could build an entire church building in okay. one 24-hour period. So he enlisted the work of a, a supervisor named Oscar Meyer. <laughs> not related. Uh, it is not a typo and is not made up. Not related. Uh, spelled differently, but pronounced the same. And they got together and they laid some foundations in the morning. And by night, they held their first services that evening. And the floors had been laid. The paint was on. And it was a fully functioning church in one full day. Uh, this took place on January 12th, 1911. By noon, they had basically built the entire outside of the structure. They'd started to, to frame the roof out. And by the end of the day, they had finished this church. They had put in carpet, which is probably made of painted canvas. Judge on the photos that I was able to see, it, it's not carpet, but it's certainly something durable that they could lay down over plain wood floors. They have windows. They've got fresh paint everywhere. And the fun thing about the photo that accompanies this story is if you look closely all the chairs that are arranged in the sanctuary were provided mm -hmm. or rented or purchased from the R.T. Dennis yeah. Company. 
of course, you all remember from the tornado story that R.T. Dennis' company was one of the ones destroyed in the 1953 tornado. So it was, it was really kind of striking to see this photo and then to realize, oh, these, these chairs for this church were purchased at this, this building where so many people died in that tornado in 1953. Mm-hmm. It's those little connections like that that I really love. Looking at one thing leads to a story of another thing, and then you can tie them all together. In 1961, the Waco Citizen noted in an article that there were still 10 members left, that original congregation from 1911, that the building was celebrating its golden anniversary, and that some of those survivors would be back in the current building uh, to talk about what it was like to build a church in a day. So was it like a publicity stunt or something like that that made them want to do it in a day? I feel like there had to be some aspect of that to it. I didn't see that specifically documented. I feel like there probably was a sort of a public spectacle component to it. You know, we have our faith that we can make this happen, and we're going to go out and we're going to do it. And I think a lot of it was just driven by the the Reverend Munger, who who really felt like this is something that we can do. You know, this can demonstrate our zeal. Methodists were were known for many years as being very on fire for God and very ready to go out and, and tackle big things and do uh, big, amazing stuff. And I think this probably falls squarely in that category. So I'm looking at the story, Eric. Do we know how long that structure stands? I could not find a date for specifically when it comes down. It is not currently standing, so certainly it's it's been gone for some time. The subsequent church, the, the brick church, is right next to that site. It is still there. Uh, it has changed uh, names. That congregation has changed to uh, something different in the ensuing years. But I don't have a date on exactly when the original church built in the day came down. I would worry if you just painted the inside of this church, having a bunch of people go inside and hold service, they might all pass out if you don't have good good enough ventilation. <laughs> yeah, you could definitely uh, give a different term to the, the phrase the Holy Spirit. <laughs> More spirits of turpentine, maybe. Um, so that was a fun one. That was a, a little short one. And, and Fred Gildersleeve actually took the photos of the creation of that church. And the photo that I found at the, the Lockwood Museum actually has a series of four photos stacked together that show the progress from the, the basic foundation to the finished product. And that was really that was really fun to stumble across. Another sort of fun, curious one is the fact that the Waco Young Men's Business League was instrumental in raising money for a, a silver service that was installed on the Battleship Texas. Hmm. The Battleship Texas, for those that, that may not know, was commissioned in 1914, and it is the last surviving World War I dreadnought left in America. You can still go down and visit the Texas. Uh, it's down near Houston. It's, it needs some, some restoration work still, uh, but the, the, the state does a really good job of, of keeping it afloat in its, its little holding area. And if you go in and you tour the Texas, you can see this silver service that was largely fundraised by the men and women of Waco. There was a, a statewide campaign to raise money for it, and uh, the YMBL jumped in and they raised $1,600, the single largest contribution uh, that was given to this Gorham Silver Company, and they created a 28-piece set to be given to uh, the captain of the ship for use by the officers. Texas Monthly did a write-up, uh, and they, they described the pieces like this. It included an epergine, uh, which is a centerpiece, two electrified candelabras, coffee, tea, and chocolate services with silver bowls and creamers, water pitchers, and serving trays, all in what's called the mission style and adorned with some kind of visual references to the state of Texas, usually the Lone Star or a cluster of cotton bowls. The most imposing piece was a 12-gallon punch bowl with cups and a ladle. So if you can imagine a 12-gallon punch bowl, this is not your drag-out-for-family-gatherings kind of punch bowl. This would be massive. Mm -hmm. (laughs) <laughs> um, and if you go and you, you go down to below decks on the Texas, you can see it all in a nice display case, and you can see the sur- silver service. Most people remember that punch bowl because its size, but also because the handles are actually ornamental figures of Stephen F. Austin and Sam Houston. On one side, it's engraved mm. with a picture of the Texas Capitol, uh, which also has a, a likeness of the governor at the time, uh, Oscar Colquitt. But on the reverse is a picture of the YMBL building in Waco, uh, and that was kind of given to them as a nod as being the single largest fundraiser for the piece. Fred Gildersleeve went down to Galveston on uh, November 7th, 1914, where they held a ceremony on the deck to present it to the captain of the ship. Uh, They laid it out on these giant tables on the deck of the Texas, right next to these massive 14-inch guns, punch bowls on a stand in the middle. And when Fred Gildersleeve took the picture, the side featuring the YMBO building is visible in the photo. It's kind of hard to pick out. You can't see a lot of detail because he also picked up all the dignitaries on the deck and the guns behind them. But it is kind of neat to see that that particular little piece of Waco history is right there in the middle of this important ceremony. Uh, for that ship. A side note for this, the Secretary of the Navy in 1914 was a strict prohibitionist, and he noted that nothing stronger than grape juice could ever be served from that magnificent punch bowl. <laughs> so, Well, I was a sailor, so I don't know if that's true. You know, what happens <laughs> when they go out to sea, who knows? Hey, I, I would be, be very doubtful if that was actually <laughs> adhered to as well. 
This is a good time to mention that Brotherwell Brewing is the official sponsor of the Waco History Podcast. That is true. I'm enjoying a act of faith tripel as we speak. I have one in the fridge <laughs> right now, waiting to be drank in celebration of the completion of this podcast interview. So why silver? I mean, there's lots of stuff I could think you'd want to donate to the military. What's what's the point? It seems kind of silly. That's a good question. Yeah, from what I could tell, it's it's a tradition that they would get a, a silver set donated to all battleships at the time. It was sort of customary for them to get these mm. utensils for the, the officers to use in the officers' mess. Typically, they came from the citizens of the state for which the ship was named. So in this mm. case, it being the Texas, they, they had this chance for the whole state to sort of raise the money. And it was just interesting that the, the YMBL was the ones that stepped up and donated the lion's share. Randy, you don't remember using the silver service? You know, be, being an enlisted person on a on a carrier with 5,000 people, I was not privy to the silver collection on the Kitty Hawk. <laughs> 12 gallons in that punch bowl and none for you. <laughs> yeah, we just had the, the government issue, regular forks and spoons and sporks. Well, speaking of strange fits, watch this segue. No, um, good transition. Thank you very much. I don't know what it is, but it's a great transition. Let's talk about the strange fit between Madison Cooper Jr. and the city of Waco and his massive tome, Saronia, Texas. Would that be okay? Let's do it. That would be great. So uh, just to give you a little context, Jeff Hunt, who we've had on the podcast before, uh, who is a colleague here at Baylor, was going to come back and talk about Saronia uh, on a podcast, and he couldn't get through it. <laughs> <laughs> Which, he's a champ for even trying, uh, and uh, you can tell him what I mean uh, here. Yes, I, and full disclosure, if you have the time and the mental wherewithal to finish this book, I salute you, because it took me many, many months, and at least two false starts before I finally was able to finish uh, Saronia, Texas. <laughs> it is not an easy read, it is a slog, but it is very interesting, and I think it tells a lot about one man's perception of life in Waco during his lifetime. Uh, obviously, Saronia, Texas is a fictionalized place, but it's based very strongly on Waco and on Madison Cooper Jr.'s own experiences growing up from sort of the tail end of the 19th century into the mid-20th century. And so I really wanted to touch on it because people have heard that name, uh, whether they've read the book or not, because you've seen the, the shop on Austin Avenue that's mm -hmm. called Saronia, and they may not know where that comes from. Other people have heard that it's a book. They know it's really long, but they don't know what it's about because most of us won't read it. Uh, and honestly, it was just... I set the goal of wanting to write about it in this book that made me finish reading it. It's 1,700 pages, just in case. Jeez. Yes. Uh, it, just over a million words. So if you think the Bible is 1,200 pages, Gone with the Wind was just over 1,000, and War and Peace is 1,200, Madison was really swinging for the fences on, on the record. Uh, <laughs> at the time, and I don't know if this is still the case, but in 1952 when it was published, it was the longest book ever published in the English language. Mm. Notable for that, uh, it spent about 11 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list, despite the fact that it is really hard to get through. And I, I question whether anybody could even read it in that 11-week period. But it, but if you're going for, you know, value per page, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's a good deal. It is definitely a good deal. It was one of those things that's in two volumes, and so it wasn't uh, a cheap investment. I want to say it retailed for about $100, $96 in 2019 equivalent. So it was $10 for a two-volume work in 1952. So if you want to drop $100 today on a two-volume book, you've got to really want to read it. Hmm. So it had to have been the same in 1952 when the book came out. Briefly, Madison Cooper Jr. was born in 1894 to uh, a family that had already made its name in Waco thanks to the M.A. Cooper Company, which was a wholesale grocery concern. He grew up as a good student. He went to UT uh, and earned a degree in English in 1915. He joins the Army and serves in World War I, and then he comes back to work in the family business. It's pretty clear that he isn't particularly interested in doing that. He's sort of an eccentric fellow. He's a lifelong bachelor. Uh, he really doesn't get into the, the, the wealth and privilege that his status as one of the richest men in Waco could afford him. He lived in his parents' home, which is still standing. It's the home of the Cooper Foundation at 18th and Austin, uh, just across from the Central Library. This house was built in 1907. His father was very particular about what he wanted it to look like. He wanted it to be sturdy and aesthetic and a beautiful piece of, of architecture for our city. And then his son tends to wander around town in a shabby cardigan. Uh, he has old weather-beaten briefcase that he carries. He kind of walks around in ragged shoes. So very much the sort of charming eccentric. He's always very polite. He's very modest, very kind, but he doesn't really get out a lot. He's kind of a recluse. And few people really knew him. They certainly didn't know that he had started writing short stories under the pseudonym Matt Cooper, and that he had done some correspondence courses through Columbia University to learn how to write uh, more effectively. He kind of writes a few small stories, doesn't really get much success until after his parents die. His mother passes away in 1939, 
and then his father dies in 1940. At that point, something breaks loose in him, and he sits down, and according to the biography that was written on him by Marion Travis, he got the idea about writing a giant magnum opus about this fictionalized southern town based on a short story he'd written called The Catch of Saronia. So for the next 11 years, from 1941 to 1952, he writes Saronia, Texas in an attic room in that house at 18th Mm. and Austin, that he furnished out for himself. If you are lucky enough to get in there and see that space today, uh, I was able to arrange a quick tour with uh, some folks at the the Cooper Foundation. Thank you to Kelly Ezell. You can see that they've left it in the same state that it was in when he passed away in 1956. Mm. The desk is the same as it was when he died. It's a very moving thing to see. So Houghton Mifflin publishes the book in 1952, and immediately people are shocked because they've just seen Madison Cooper Jr. as this sort of reclusive middle-aged man who lives in an old Victorian mansion. He's got a lot of money. People don't know much about him. But then all of a sudden, here comes this two-volume, 1,700-page tome. Reviewers are split at the time. Some of them say it's this great satire on a southern town, sort of bridging the time between Reconstruction and the middle class of the early 20th century. Others basically said it's only important because it's so long, it's roughly written, and they they aren't really sure why it's gotten as popular as it is. But for whatever reason, it is popular for a short time. Uh, And then it just drops off the radar. People have asked, well, what caused it to disappear? Mainly it was the cost issue. I mentioned it was $10 at the time, so uh, almost $100 in current time. It also came out at the same time as some other books you probably heard of, Hemingway's Old Man in the Sea (laughs) and Steinbeck's East of Eden. So it's going to be hard to compete with those two uh, on the charts, and those are going to get a lot more attention and are a lot easier to read. If nothing else, they're faster to read. And so eventually he just sort of, it just dropped off the radar. With all that set up, I've only met a few people who've actually read all of Saronia, Texas. And so the question I get is, what is it about? Mm -hmm. And the short answer is, it's about a lot. He packed so much into this book. And you would think writing it over 11 years and, and doing all these observations of things that he sees in his life, that it would have to have a lot of content in it. It is essentially the story of this town dating back to the antebellum South through Reconstruction and then up to the World War I era. He really wants to show the transition between the Old South, these sort of wealthy land-owning, slave-owning settlers, up to you know, the impacts of the, the end of the Civil War through Reconstruction, and then the rise of this middle class, represented by the family of a shopkeeper who comes to town and makes his wealth, but he's still seen as sort of second class because he doesn't come from the old stock. Mm. It's also largely a novel about race, and I was sort of surprised at how much compassion and nuance that Cooper showed toward his African-American characters. There are a large number of of black characters in this novel. Uh, There's a number of characters of of all stripes. It's got dozens and dozens of characters. They wander in and out. Sometimes they're important for a while. Sometimes they disappear for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pages before they show back up. You need a chart. And frankly, <laughs> there is a there's a genealogy chart in the back of the book that actually shows all these characters. Perfect. So he, he but he treats them with a lot of, of, of dignity and respect and he actually even enters into the head of some of these these black characters who are either menial servant roles or some of them are, are sort of up and coming. They're trying to start small businesses and make something for themselves. Some are former slaves, and they aren't necessarily happy to not be slaves anymore. It's a very complicated look at race, but I think he did his best to show what he had seen in his own life and probably the stories that he heard growing up. That said, it can be hard to read. Uh, The N-word shows up a lot. He also does his best to try to use the style that Mark Twain used when he would render dialect in print. You know, he would spell things the way people spoke, and so as you read it, you could sort of hear that voice in your head. Cooper tries that. He's not very good at it. And so as you read it, you go, ooh, this is... This is cringy. Mm. I can't... It's hard to read some of it. But he does his best, and I think it's admirable that he he tries to paint all races, but particularly African-Americans, with more respect than might have been expected at the time. There's a lot of fantasy elements woven in and out of the book. Uh, there's a horseback riding ghost. There's not one, but two fires in a brothel. Uh, there are... I thought, okay, you've done this once, then I saw it coming. I went, oh no, you're going to burn another brothel. Um, <laughs> And he did. One thing that he's really good at, and I will give him absolute props for this as, as a person who has been through the, the Museum Studies program here at Baylor and learned at the, the feet of Ken Hafertip and learned about furnishings and decorations, Cooper can weave a yarn about the detail of a physical setting. Hmm. He knows how to describe a parlor. He can talk about furniture. He can talk about the way dances were held in the parlors of these opulent homes. The way he describes these houses, you know he's talking about places he's seen in Waco. You know that he's talking about furniture he's seen in his own house or in other really nice houses in Waco. It's very clear he knows how to describe these things. That said, he will do it for a dozen pages and not move the plot at all. But we <laughs> So if you're if you're into that, you can really get a sense of twentieth you know, turn of the century 
furnishings and decor, but it, it, it can it can make for a very slow read. In my un, unprofessional opinion, there are very obvious aspects of Waco that are in the novel. Particularly, he sort of bases two of the main characters on himself. There's one named Tam Lipscomb. Uh, he is the son of the, the man who starts the dry goods business and makes a lot of money. There's a very clear parallel between Tam and Madison Cooper himself. And then there's a character named Mr. Lance Thaxton, who is the son of a very wealthy Hill family, uh, one of the old families of Saronia. And he is kind of a, a recluse. He's a he's a, an eligible bachelor, but he's there's something off about him, and so he spends most of his time mowing the lawn of his estate or wandering around the town uh, in his old top hat. That sounds like him. It sounds a lot like him. <laughs> and so he's definitely written himself in there, and I think he slyly did that as a way to sort of be an embedded observer of these things he sees around Waco and a way to sort of parallel that into the book. One of the reasons that this book gets remembered, aside from the fact that it's so long and no one wants to read it, is that people believed that all the characters in Saronia were direct parallels to real people in Waco. And, and I'm sure you both have probably heard these stories that, yeah. you know, oh, that character, that's got to be Pat Neff. Or, oh, that character over there, that's, that's you know, so-and-so. Or that's Judge so-and-so. He never said that they were based on people that he knew. Hmm. He said that they were sketches of people based on sort of stereotypes almost like yes i wrote a story and i included a person who was a banker and who had these activities but it wasn't that guy mm. you know it was just these people i observed and i've sort of blown up their characters to a great extent but a rumor started to circulate that i thought was really interesting that somewhere in the house there was a key sort of a, a roman a clef of this character equals this person ah. and this character equals this person and the rumor was that it was somewhere in his office and so when i heard that and i went to uh, meet with the folks at the Cooper Foundation. They said, no, we haven't heard that, but we'll take you up and you can take a look at the, you know, the, the room where he wrote the book. And clearly there's no, let me just dispel the rumor. There is no list of this character is this person. But that you found there are that I found. Ooh, good point, Randy. <laughs> they probably hid it from me because they didn't want me to tell the truth. <laughs> no. So there are a bunch of maps, though, and a lot of other large documents hanging on the wall that I could see very easily being the source of this rumor. Hmm. You know, someone walks, you know, they see from the outside, oh, there's all these things hanging from the wall. I bet that's where he kept his notes. Oh, I bet that's where the, the list of characters is. And the rumor is born. Now, is it possible that somewhere in his records there was a list? Maybe, but all of his personal records were destroyed when he died. That was part of his uh, request. Also, when he died, all of his money went to start the Cooper Foundation. That foundation gives grants to people in Waco for the betterment of the people of Waco. If that was something that existed, it's gone now. All you can have is just your imagination as you read the book, and if, if you can kind of stretch the truth a little bit, you might be able to guess who he was using as his inspiration. I would say if you run across a copy and you have a lot of time to kill, it's worth reading. It does have some really well-described sections of, of action. They're just <laughs> very far apart, and it will take you a long time to kite from plot point to plot point. So, Eric, the question is, have you read The Haunted Hacienda, which is his only other novel? I have. <laughs> it's much shorter. It, too, is very rough. It's, it's a lot quicker paced, and it's, it's kind of a straightforward ghost story, for lack of a better term. It's also not very good, and I think that's probably why his literary career didn't take off before he passed away in, in 1956. It just, he got that one burst of doing something very unique and interesting, and then the follow-up was kind of a, a, a meh, and then from there, uh, unfortunately, he passed away before he could try for the third one. But I, I ran across the Haunted, Haunted Hacienda at an antique store in Fort Worth at one point and went, well, I know I have to buy this. So it is in my collection. At some point, I looked into who owns the copyright on Saronia, Texas. And, and back in the 80s, it transferred to someone. It wasn't anyone I recognized as being connected to the family or, or a, even a Way Cohen. And so I don't know what the status of that is. But yeah, you can't find it. You have to go find somebody's you know original print run uh, that, that's got it for sale. Uh, I actually found my copies from mm. a, a woman who was selling them out in Grosbeck. So I had to drive to Grosbeck <laughs> and, and pay cash for this wonderful piece of Waco history. But it was totally worth it. Maybe I'll find out who has the, the copyright and I'll, I'll make a, an audiobook version. And uh, you can listen to it. In your professional opinion, read or not read? I know you said, like, if you have a bunch of time, but, like, really, is it worth it? If you are a fan of dense Victorian, Byzantine, dozens of characters and, and not a lot of plot, Yes. If you really like your action or you like books that don't take longer to read than trying to sit down and read the Bible from cover to cover, no. Um, <laughs> I, I loved it because it, it, it was written by Way Cohen and it's obviously inspired by Waco and there's some really fun details there and some sections that were really neat to read. 
I think it's a really niche community that's going to want to sit down and finish all of Saronia, Texas. So I know we talked about a lot of the stories in your book so far, and I don't want to give everything away so people will actually buy your book. But I had one question. What is on the cover of the book? Yes. So the cover is actually a photograph of the swimming pool at the natatorium. The natatorium was built in 1892. It went under several different names. Uh, Sometimes it was called the Waco Natatorium or the Natatorio Sanatorium or the Natatorium Hotel. Regardless, it was built in 1892 by a Confederate Army veteran uh, named Robert Parrott. The Waco History website, which you guys are very familiar, said that they built it at 4th and Mary because it was really close to the center of town and, most importantly, to the Cotton Belt Depot. So travelers who were coming through town could during a layover the train to, to, to move on to the next stop, they could come over to the natatorium, uh, they could hop in and take advantage of its various baths and swimming pool and uh, just relax themselves for a day. It was only open for about a year before it burned in 1894. <laughs> they built it better, uh, and they, they built it uh, as a four-story uh, tall building in a Spanish sort of architectural style. It had a rooftop garden. According to the write-up on Waco history, the natatorium was equipped with departments for both ladies and gentlemen to have Turkish and Russian baths, individual baths, tubs, vapor rooms, sweat and resting rooms, furnished rooms, a cafe, offices, and parlors. Uh, it also had one of the largest indoor swimming pools in the South. That's what you see on the cover. One room of the natatorium was known to have dozens of pairs of crutches left behind by people who came there needing walking aids when they came in, but no longer needing them after they soaked in the baths. Uh, Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds like a little bit of self-promotion to me, but mm-hmm. um, nonetheless, that is what the, the natatorium was all about. So it, it's kind of a fun photo. You have these women in their, their bathing caps and then their 1920s era swimsuits and the men as well all sort of staring at the camera and it's 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 a fun it's a fun photo so it was pulling water from the artesian wells that's correct and so the the artesian well chapter goes into some detail about how that came about and how waco was sort of making a name for itself as a place to come to get the water cure to come and take the baths or drink the water and then they relied on it for city water supply for many years And then, of course, as tends to happen, those supplies started to go down. The wells weren't deep enough to reach the water anymore, so they were pumping air into the wells to try to push water back out. And that only worked for a little while, and then eventually they mostly ran dry. Mm. Uh, So we had to find other sources of water. But for a very brief time, it was like, you know, you would come to Waco and and you would be able to experience lots of different miracle cures for whatever (laughs) ailed you. Uh, Everything from cancer to the grip to a cough. You would come out to Waco and go hang out in the water for a while. Had it lasted longer, maybe we would have been called Waco Springs or something like that. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, The one nickname that came from that was Geyser Mm -hmm. City because of the water just sort of shooting up into the air. So yes, the the, the Natatorium is definitely uh, an interesting chapter in our history. Would you rather hear about the Hoffmanettes and the movie A Waco Romance, or would you rather hear about the steamboats on the Brazos? I think steamboats would be good. We've had Ken Lang Archer on to talk about the Brazos, and we talked about the, the Waco Navigators and the connection to wanting to be a uh, river capital. Yeah, talk a little bit about the, the steamboat attempts. I think that'd be interesting. Sure. Okay. So uh, in the 1971 summer issue of Waco Heritage and History, they point out that there were actually two attempts to create steamboats on the Brazos to try to be able to take passengers and freight from Waco all the way down to Galveston and back. They were called the Kate Ross and the Lizzie Fisher. The Kate Ross is the first of the two. This was from a man whose last name was Gibson. We can't find his first name. Who claimed that he had steamboated on the Lower Brazos and was living temporarily in Waco. While he was here, he convinced a number of Wacoans to partner with him, including Norman and Harvey Conger, there's that name again, who owned a machine shop, and they provided the engines. Uh, some other guys served as contractors and shipbuilders, and so they started building the boat in the early fall of 1874. There's a great passage from the, a, a Tribune article about this that I wanted to read in full because it paints a great picture of where it sits. So if you've been in Waco, you know where these locations are. His shipyard for building was on the east bank of the river at a point on the hill but near the stream. By the end of 1874, he launched the hull and then proceeded to put on the lower deck and what he called a hurricane deck, but it was a flat roof and could be used on occasion for dancing. The boat was about 100 feet long and 25 feet beam with a hull 6 feet deep, drawing not over 16 inches of water weight. The boat was of the stern wheel order and a well-built staunch craft. It was painted white as it sat at the foot of Washington Street and presented a neat appearance. So you can see this huge white steamboat with the, the big paddle on the side sitting down sort of where the... The, the Washington Avenue Bridge is now uh, in 1874. When it was all finished, they decided to christen it. He sort of asked around for a name to use, and the name that came back was Kate Ross. Kate Ross was the first Anglo child born in what became McLennan County. Uh, she was married to Tom Paget, 
uh, which is another big name in Waco history. He was a local merchant, and her father was Shapley Ross, uh, who was a pioneer and soldier and a local legend. So Kate Ross was sort of the perfect name, and in February 1875, they went seven miles upriver with a lot of uh, important Wacoites, including Governor Richard Koch, who had been born in Waco, and came up to Austin just for the event, and he made a glowing speech, according to news reports. They had music and dancing, and they came back, and everything was deemed a success. Captain Gibson knew that that wouldn't pay the bills, and so what he wanted to do was start making runs up to a really small town about 30 miles upriver called Towash. That is near Lake Whitney. And in fact, if you go to Lake Whitney State Park, there's uh, an area where the, the ruins of Towash still sit. But at the time, it had a flouring mill and some stores and uh, was a center of a prosperous agricultural community. So Gibson thought he would run back and forth from Waco to Towash, bring Waco goods back, specifically cotton, flour, and, and charcoal, and then sell them in town, and that would be a profitable work. He also wanted to try to get down the lower Brazos toward Columbia and then down on to Galveston eventually. So his plan was to take the boat down to Galveston, outfit it with some upgrades, and then bring it back and start making these commercial runs. Uh, the only problem is, if you paid any attention to the geography of the, the river between Waco and Galveston, there is a point in Falls County where there are literally <laughs> some waterfalls. And the only way to get a boat over them at that time was to wait for a really high flood stage. And even then, it was tricky uh, unless you were a really experienced pilot. So Gibson hired a pilot, and he made a wait until he got a good flood. And that happened in June of 1875. Floods back then, the locals called a red rise because as the water rose upstream, it picked up red dirt and rolled through town in this big red wave. In June of 1875, this red rise comes through, and Gibson and his pilot, Tom Jennings, put out to river and as the Trib puts it, they were never seen again. Which sounds very ominous, but it's actually kind of sad. According to the captain, they get to Falls County, the boat runs ashore on some rocks, and they can't get it to rock across this low water area. So they sit there, and they have about a third of the boat over the front, but the engines were in the back, and that was the heavy part, so it's just sticking out in space at hmm. this spot and won't go over. They were stuck there for 10 days. Finally, one day it raises a little bit over a foot, and they pass over that part. They get all the way down to almost Calvert, basically. So if you pick yourself going down Highway 6, they get down to the town of Calvert. The water level starts going down again. They get stuck on a shoal. They sat there for weeks and they could never get it off the shoal. So finally, the pilot gives up. He said, I need to get to work. I can't do this anymore. I got to quit. So he leaves and goes on to Galveston. Gibson stayed there with the boat for a while before he too gave up and left it there. Uh, eventually, the Congers came down and took the parts for their machine. Uh, the lumber was broken up and sold, and that was the end of the Kate Ross. <laughs> he never made it to Galveston, let alone any, any kind of profitability. Let's put it another way. The Brazos didn't let him get to Galveston. That's correct. Uh, there was <laughs> no reason to think that was going to work for him. Um, <laughs> The Lizzie Fisher, uh, the second steamboat, comes along just shortly after, and it has a more interesting finish to its story. Same basic idea. It's around the, it's, uh, 1875. A man in town uh, decides to raise some money and build it. He claimed that he'd done a lot of river boating up and down, and he knew how to make a boat, and it would be great. So he builds this boat near the suspension bridge in 1875. Uh, he also wants to go up and down to Towash uh, to bring things back and sell, but water levels weren't good enough for him to do so, to the point where he's waiting and waiting and waiting, and eventually his creditors get upset because he owes them a lot of money, and his boat's not going anywhere. So they're like, look, this is getting tense. You need to make some runs. Finally, this guy, his name is Woodruff, he and his wife and two children are living on the boat, crammed in the cabin, waiting for a chance to get out, and finally another red rise comes in July of 1875, just a month after the Kate Ross gets out of town. So the Lizzie Fisher, people wake up one morning in July and it's gone. They don't know where it went, he's just disappeared. There's some excitement a little while later because people find some wreckage uh, and some bodies down downstream, claimed to be the captain of the boat and his family. This turns out to not be true. Before long, a new set of stories starts to, to circulate based on some people from Waco who'd been in New Orleans a few months after the boat disappeared. They claimed that they had seen the Lizzie Fisher in New Orleans and that the boat had arrived there by basically going down the swollen Brazos River to the Gulf of Mexico and then heading over to New Orleans. Eventually, we see a report in a Tribune article uh, that says a lawyer could confirm that shortly after the boat disappeared, the, the captain did pay off the money, uh, around two or $300, adding some credence to this idea that the boat probably made it to New Orleans and he made some money to at least pay it off. So the Lizzie Fisher at least continues to be a working boat for some point after it leaves Waco, but it never comes back. So those were the two attempts to try to get Waco-based steamboats up and down the Brazos 
that are documented, and they, they both end in complete and utter failure. And knowing more from our Brazos episode about the how it runs and how it doesn't like to be contained, that doesn't surprise me at all. No. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, the the efforts to make it navigable continue uh, <laughs> after that. It's a long, long struggle. Yes, and it really isn't until you know the railroads come in and, and and finally put the nail in that coffin that look we can do this cheaper and easier by just running railroads into Waco. We can carry pretty much anything, and then we. Of course, we dam and we, we change the course a little bit of the, the river and, and create Lake Brazos. And we, we have this new way of controlling the river. We don't have it flood so much. And it, it, it kind of becomes almost a tourist thing for us now. It's this pretty river, this pretty little urban lake through the middle of Waco. Uh, but to think back that it wasn't that long ago, they thought, hey, how can we make some money you know, sailing boats up and down this river? But that one, that one was one that I found just kind of by accident looking in the, the Waco heritage and history and thought, that's a fun one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to include that. At the end of the book, I had come across some photos that I just couldn't get the whole story behind. No matter where I looked, I wasn't able to figure out much of what's going on. So I, cho- I chose to include them and basically describe what I know. Mm-hmm. And there's one that I think has to be discussed. And, and Stephen, if you look in the very back of the book, it's a photo of uh, a meeting of the William Camber Lumber Company. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, this showed up at the, the Lockwood Library Museum. And big thanks to Sam Moody for his help uh, with the, the items there. He's a he's a very capable archivist and was, was a big help in, in letting me paw through their, their collection there. And if this really is an actual meeting, I cannot imagine what it is they're talking about. This photo is, it's insane. There are a group of men ranged all the way around the room in sort of a horseshoe. And they are dressed in various costumes. There are some that are dressed as babies, including one in a large baby carriage. There are skeletons. There's a gremlin. There's a man seated on a toilet uh, mounted on a rolling platform. It is truly bizarre. It's all men except for one woman who's standing next to the man uh, in a stroller dressed as a baby. There's a background far in the back of the photo that that has the, the crest of the Cameron Highlanders, which I can only assume is related to Cameron's family. They're broken into these sections around the perimeter of the room based on their outfits. There's some men in academic robes. Uh, there's those gremlins. There's some Highlanders in kilts. Uh, some men in medieval armor. Several men appear to be in their underwear. Uh, some are in business suits. Some have these huge sort of almost Dia de los Muertos uh, skull masks on yeah. their heads. Some of them are holding signs. One of them says, learn to ride your customer's hobbies. I don't know what that means. Another one just says courtesy. The skull men are holding a sign that says, this is for the dead ones. And then the baby is holding a sign that says, better babies make better men. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a complete loss as to what so this is. you have is. no idea. Do we have a date? I mean, is there any sort of way to date this photo? No, I circuit it, uh, I want to say 20s. And that's based entirely on sort of conjecture on my part, just based on the look of some things in the photo. It could be entirely from a different time. My best guess, and I didn't put this in the book, my best guess is it has something to do with some kind of a parade or public celebration of something, and this was like... Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. It looks like a parade yeah. that's finished, and it's in this room, or they're staging it in the room to go out. Yeah, I don't know. yeah that, that's that's the best I could come up with. But it is truly bizarre, and I stared at that picture for, for a long time, and you know, I zoomed in on the scan and was really trying to get in close to figure out as much as I could, and eventually I just thought, I'm never going to know what this is. And if someone out there in, in your listenership hears this and goes, oh, I know what that is, please tell me, because I would love to know what is going on. Maybe we could put the uh, picture in the show notes, yeah. the photo a photo in the show notes, and they could look at it. I was going to say that's great. a great tease for buying your book, though. I also like crazy that. crazy photo. <laughs> yeah. That's right. There are a lot of stories in here that we didn't touch on today and that I, I would like people to read in the book, but just the real joy of this is to get to dive into these things and to, to make them accessible to people who are in Waco outside of Waco have an interest in it because now they know about the city from Fixer Upper. Maybe they're Baylor alums and they didn't really know that much about their city's history and this is a chance to learn some more about it. Whatever the reason people pick it up, it it truly is humbling to have been given this opportunity to document some of these things. And my hope is just that if you learn one interesting thing about Waco's history that you didn't know, then I feel like that's uh, I've achieved what I wanted from the book. It was a, a ton of fun to write. It's been really great to talk about it, and I really appreciate you guys having me on to discuss it. Great. I do want to note Eric's other books are uh, Images of America Waco and Images of Modern America Waco, and they're both Arcadia Publishing. And you can find him on Twitter at Eric Ames, A-M-E-S 628. That is correct. I, I don't tweet often, and when I do, sometimes it's about my kids. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I would love for people to follow me and you know, throw, throw Waco history uh, tidbits and nuggets at me. Who knows? There could be a volume four. And one thing I would like to close with, if I could be permitted, is just to really encourage people to 
think about how to document your own history. Stephen, you asked me early on about why do some of these stories stay hidden. I think a lot of it is because as we're living through these things, we don't think to stop and write some of it down or document it. I mean, I love what you do with the Institute for Oral History in that you give people the tools and the training and the encouragement to document their own stories. Some people will make it into the formal memoirs that you guys do the interviews for, uh, you know, some of these big topics. Others are just interested to do, to do their own family stories at home, and they can learn those skills from the Oral History Institute to, to document those things on their own using the things they have access to at their own home. That's what I think is important. You know, in 50 years, if someone's writing the history of 2020's Waco, I would hope that they could access someone's home-written notes on the things that they lived through. That's the kind of stuff that we're sorting through from 50 and 100 years ago that make these stories relevant today. Document the things that you see today. Sit down with your grandparents. Turn on the recording app on your phone and just have them talk about their life growing up here. What did they see? Who did they meet? Uh, what was daily life like? It doesn't have to be written down for a book. It doesn't have to be a professional thing. It just needs to be captured. And that's kind of been my drumbeat for the last year as I've been working on this book is just to really encourage people to go out and document their history and to, to, to put it places and keep it places where it can be used and, and enjoyed in the future. Uh, Eric, we sure appreciate uh, you joining us again. It was great to have you on. Yeah, I learned a lot. Thanks very much, guys. I love it. It's a great time had by all, and, and I'd be happy to come back anytime. Cross the Brazos and Waco Ride hard and I'll make it by dawn Cross the Brazos and Waco Thanks for listening to the Waco History Podcast. Like what you heard? Subscribe, rate, and review our show on iTunes so we can reach more listeners. You can find show notes and info on every episode at wacohistorypodcast.com and more info on Waco's past at wacohistory.org. Our theme music, used with permission, is Cross the Brazos at Waco, performed by the late Billy Walker. For more info on Billy's music, go to billywalker.com. The Waco History Podcast is brought to you by Brotherwell Brewing. As of this recording, they're back open for drinking on premises. And join Stephen and I on November 12th for trivia. We're putting together a category on Waco history. Check them out off historic Bridge Street in East Waco. That's Brotherwell Brewing. We'll see you next time. Then the night came alive with gunfire He knew that at last it'd been found As the ranger's badge showed brightly El Bandito lay on the ground Carmela knew he was dying That all of her dreams were in vain As she kissed his lips for the last time she heard him whisper again Cross the Brazos and Waco Ride hard and I'll make it by dawn Cross the Brazos and Waco I'm safe when I reach San Antonio I'm safe when I reach San Antonio